The Beastie Boys asked, can anyone fix my computer? Jimmy Fallon joked, not 100% in jest. Thank God Conan got promoted. Tim Berners-Lee, the father of the internet, cautioned, free, open, keep one web. All three were accepting Webby Awards. The Webbies, a celebration of all things excellence in internet, is famous partially for its acceptance speeches, which are limited to just five words. Vice President Al Gore, accepting his in 2005, said, please don't recount this vote. What would your speech be? The Webbies, now in its 24th year, is currently accepting submissions for what's been called the Oscars of the internet for everything from best sports app to branded pharmaceutical content to best real estate website to best scripted podcast. It draws tens of thousands of submissions every year, celebrity heat and media buzz at the gala. People still like the internet in spite of it all. I'm Brian Breaker, editor of Ad Age, and people still like me in spite of it all, and you are listening to the AdLib Podcast. Joining me today is David Michelle Davies, the CEO of the Webbies, which are presented annually by the International Academy of Digital Arts and Sciences. We discuss the trends he's been watching in the online space and what it even means to be a website as we careen into 2020. We dig into the viral speech comedian Sasha Baron Cohen made at the Anti-Defamation League last week in which he railed against the social networks. And David Michelle shares what it takes to cut through the clutter today. Stay tuned, you may pick up some tips as you submit for your award for 2020. David Michelle Davies, welcome to the podcast, AdLib. It's great to have you here. Thanks for having me. Psyched to be here. Um, I'm very I'm very happy to see you. Like We first met, we were discussing earlier, uh, unclear on how many years ago. It was three is the most recent it could have been the, four, the minimum four years ago <laughs> maybe at South by Southwest uh, and uh, a lot has happened in those four years um, and you are currently accepting submissions for uh, your what is it the 24th webbies yes also right it's right in the same vein as whether it was three or four years ago like how old can we make ourselves feel <laughs> yes the 24th annual webby awards final entry day deadline is uh friday december 20th so we're right in the middle of that yeah and uh launched in 97 arbiter of all things excellence in internet so the first question is who died and made you guys the judge well, uh, we were just the first judge, basically. We were the first people that existed, and uh, we kind of came, you know, we came up with the, I'd like to say we came up with the concept of an award for the internet. It's not like it's the concept of an award for something like that is, is hard to, to come up with. Right. Um, but we were, we were basically the first, so, yeah. And you are you you're the CEO, but you are uh, you've been you've been with the organization not not since the inception, but for a while. Yeah, I started there. I think it was the third Webby Awards. Okay. Um, Long enough. I think it was 1999. Yeah, and uh, I had this great job. Actually, I ran the judging process, mm -hmm. which for people who are not as old as me, I won't speak for you, might not know that sort of at the beginning of the web. Uh, there weren't a lot of like experts on who could be the judges for websites because like it hadn't it just didn't exist for that long, right? right? And so the people who were really good at the web, like in 1997, were people who made CD-ROMs. That was the <laughs> that was the skill that poured it over. And so like a lot of the early web shops and people who were web professionals, like really like from ESPN to like these agencies and stuff, were people who previously worked on CD-ROMs. Yeah. And yeah, go ahead. I, well, no, I think that's, it's amazing that you say that because early in my career, one of my first uh, jobs at, at Newsweek Magazine was for the website, which was 
an, an iteration of their CD-ROM division. Right. And it was a total backwater. The, the magazine, the print people did not care about us at all. This was 2002, 2001, 2002. Print people couldn't care less about us, and we were able to do whatever we wanted. But it was the next uh, step in the evolution of the CD-ROM division of Newsweek. Yeah. So yeah, that, no. It was, it's interesting to hear you say that. Yeah, I mean, it was that was the skill set. And so we had all these judges. And then what we also did at the time is we went and got people who were, like, really great in the field of whatever web category it was. So, like, in music, we had, like, David Bowie as a judge. Wow. And How did you get him on? David Bowie turned out to be, like, super into the internet really early on. He had something called BowieNet, which was, like, an ISP you could dial up to. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you could you basically use it as your dial-up service. There was, like, Bowie community fan boards in there you could like pitch lyrics for his songs and like he was very into it very very tech forward um guy super early on so he was you know he was wanted to see what the best websites were it was a good way for him to sort of keep up with what was going on so um, but anyway long story short i had that job running that and i just learned a ton about the web in those early days from all these like early pioneers Mm -hmm. um and then eventually i left for a while and then uh, the Webbies got sold. It was owned by this company called IDG, which mm-hmm. people out there who are like big fans of Computer World and Macworld Magazine might have heard of. Um, they own that big trade publisher, um, and they sold it. And I met the new owners and really hit it off with them. And so I came back to run the Webbies in 2005 uh, here in New York City. Mm-hmm. And um, so, what is so? How would you describe what it is you do other than saying like this is the best of the web it's the best of the web essentially in in multiple categories so it's podcast media advertising video yeah i mean accurate. what we say is we recognize the best of the internet and the people who make it essentially and the reason that's important there's a bunch of reasons but the reason one of the big reasons is recognizing the best stuff out there really sets a standard and a bar for everybody who are internet professionals and want to make really great content right mm-hmm. so the opportunity to go and look and see hey, this is what 3,000 internet experts who live in 30 different countries came through and went through 13, 14,000 entries this year and decided we're the best. 3,000 judges. Yeah. Wow. And could go through all that work and be able to, yeah. the ability to look at that work and say, hey, you know what? I'm working on a new app or a new podcast or a new ad and I want to know it's really best in the space. You can go look at there. So it really sets a standard. And then the other thing is that people who make creative stuff, whether that's like a TV commercial or an app or do user experience, um, they're judged on how good they do their job. It's very subjective, right? It's yeah. like, who's to say? And so awards and like our award and other awards that are out there play a really big role in that. It's sort of like the grading of a creative professional is like their ability to compete and do well and have their work recognized. So uh, I'm going to get the, the, the first, this question out of the way early. The, the, the big knock or the only knock, I guess, that I've come across on you guys is that obviously sites or whoever's entering have to pay to enter, uh, just as they have to, full disclosure, have to pay to enter at age uh, awards shows. Uh, meaning that sites that don't pay to enter are just not even up for consideration. So how is this a, a comprehensive award? How do you dodge the or, or, or refute the pay-to-play argument? Yeah, I mean, like at the end of the day, uh, the business model in the world that has been proven out over time to be able to support recognition and awards, it doesn't matter what type of award, mm-hmm. tele, uh, television award like the Emmys, awards for food like James Beard, whatever it might be, our entry fees. Those mm-hmm. are the things that can sustain an organization to bring those 3,000 people together, do the judging. We do it all online, build the technology to do all the costs that go into that. And that kind of remains consistent over time. And so, um, 
I, I get, I think I, when people, I hear that criticism, I sort of like, okay, part of this is that the internet is so user friendly and it goes all the way down to an individual level. Like what person out there ever thought, how many people actually think about making TV shows and entering them into the Emmys? Mm -hmm. Not many, but if you do that, you also pay an entry fee. For sure. Um, and so I think a lot of it is just that people just don't realize that this is how it works. Um, we've tried other business models. Like we tried, we have sponsors and sponsorships and other things, but the thing we've learned is that over time, this is the thing that can sustain us. And, uh, I'm pretty, I think that we made the right decision. We are probably one of the oldest internet brands out there. Mm -hmm. I mean, we are older. I mean, yeah, we were, Yahoo is right there with us for a while. We're 24 years old. Um, Yahoo's probably not going to be a brand for much longer. Right. I think. Well, that's uh, right. Which, which I'm going to flip that on to you guys. I mean, you run, you run something called the Webby Awards, which awards websites. Which the whole idea of a website is almost uh, antiquated at this point. What does a website mean in 2019, 2020? What does a website, quote unquote, of the future look like? You know, um, it's really it's a really interesting question. And one thing I would say is when we started, websites were like the thing that happened on the internet. There was like very little other stuff. There was email. There's ICQ for any of you like old people like I me out there, like chat, right? Yeah. Um, today, there's just so many different types of things that go on on the internet, right? There's, there's websites still. There's videos. There's podcasts. We honor all that stuff. To get to your website question, um, what we've seen ultimately is a website is a, over time, we've seen like a website is an interface for information on some level. And you start to see now different types of interfaces for that information. And so I would suggest that something like Google Home or Alexa are actually other versions of interfaces for websites. So right? the, the, Those new, are, the new website, yeah, the, the or, new portal. Or yeah, or it's, I mean, not in every case. In some cases, they're games. In some cases, they're entertainment. You can listen to books on Alexa. You can have interactive plays on Alexa or Google Home. Um, but one of the functions is like, hey, I am interested in booking a ticket on this thing, learning more about cheetahs, wh whatever right. your weird interest is. So um, I think we'll keep seeing my interest in cheetahs is not weird. <laughs> <laughs> and how did you know that? Um, so uh, okay, so how do you? So you guys have to iterate, and you guys have to change your categories all the time. I would imagine we do. Yeah. Um, what are any new categories uh, that you guys are looking at now that you are not used to judging? Uh, well, I think last year we introduced voice categories for the first time. That was really interesting. Um, and that's sort of probably the bigger, cha biggest change in like the last few years. Uh, if only because it's not at a computer screen, you're not generally doing it with your eyes. Um, most of the other things, with the exception of podcasts, are pretty much, are very visual. Mm -hmm. um, so like from an inside, insider-insider perspective, that just presented a whole new set of challenges around judging and how do you get people to judge that and what are the criteria and all those kind of things. But also I think just from like our web groupy uh, perspective of people who love the internet and that's like why we do what we do, really exciting to see the web go into this new place where, you know, like instead of... This weird non-visual place. Yeah, yeah, and like if you think about it, like phones are really great and have been really amazing for the internet and have really distributed the internet in so many different places, but have also created very singular experiences where like a lot of people are like looking at their phone all the time, myself included. And with voice, you have the opportunity for a lot more shared experiences. Mm -hmm. um, you have people who can interface with the voice at the same time. Who One person might have a question somebody else can ask Google or Alexa or whatever it is for 
um, the answer, everybody gets to hear it. So mm -hmm. just a lot of different types of things going on there that are different to how we sort of gotten used to using the internet over, say, the last 10 years. Yeah, not too long ago, we had a, an executive from UMG, Universal Music Group, on, on this podcast, and we were talking about how these home devices have really changed the music listening experience from personal headphone isolated to if it's in the living room, it becomes more communal and people's tastes have changed and they've seen uh, uh, shifts in the way people search for music and experience music when it becomes a, a household thing versus a personal thing. Uh, so it's interesting to hear you sort of echo that. Um, you yeah. guys are in the submissions deadline process now, right? This we is are. a crunch time for you, so it like is, yeah. tax season for accountants. Yeah, I mean, you could look at it that way, I'd say. Yeah, we probably have a couple of April 15ths in our world, but yeah, to some extent, yeah. <laughs> Certainly tax season for all the entrants. So, yeah. So how many are you expecting this year? You had like 10,000 last year? We had about 13,000 last year. Oh, shit. Um, the hardest, I would expect it to grow a bit. Hard to say exactly until we, you know, everybody waits till the last minute. Mm -hmm. um, if people are out there wondering why there's always like lots of deadlines, whether it be for us or anywhere else, it's because... That's what gets people to to, to get over the finish line. So right, you're sitting there. on a lot of open applications that have not been submitted yet. Yeah, that happens to us on a yeah, smaller sure. scale. Yeah. So what what cuts thirteen thousand plus submissions, three thousand some odd judges? How do you cut through that kind of clutter? Uh, asking for a friend, not because we're submitting for this exact podcast or anything, or sure, but maybe we are. I mean. You don't need to know. <laughs> what cuts through the clutter? Yeah. Well, the thing that's really interesting that's happening now, and I would say over the last three, four, five years, the quality overall of the baseline is just exceptionally high, right? Mm -hmm. Like, it used to be that, say, we got 10,000 entries, like 7,000 of them were like, okay, but not that great, you know? Mm. 2,000 of them were pretty good, and 1,000 were like amazing. Now it's like if we get 13,000, like 10,000 of them are really, really good. Mm -hmm. You know, so we're actually, we're, you know, by and large, the majority of the work that comes in is just very, very, very good work. And we're really now looking at, in terms of what gets recognized and wins, the stuff that's at the top. So it's much, much harder to sort of cut through than I'd say it used to be. Mm -hmm. um, but at the, at the same time, the quality overall is greatly improved. So to answer your question, what cuts through, I think there's a couple of things. Um, there's always new stuff that's out there. There's new technologies. There's new ideas. There's stuff that's happening in the world. Work that is on some level, um, you know, sort of complementing that, whether it's using new technology in a really new way, whether it's addressing cultural issues, which are really important today, but just essentially relevance is a really important thing. Mm -hmm. um, so that's that's a big thing. I'd say also the really, really old school ideas around like quality, you know, quality, storytelling, that stuff is still super, super important. Mm -hmm. um, so there's not like, uh, I wish I could say like, hey, everybody just needs to make sure that, you know, I guess in 2005, I would say you have a viral video as part of your campaign. Mm -hmm. um, and that would work. But it really is sort of those classic things like, uh, you know, quality of craft, like storytelling, um, you know, very, very old school ideas around communications. Yeah, and and uh, you have a, this being a advertising and media podcast, you have a whole category for advertising and media. What, as you sort of sit, to remove this from Webby specifically, to just sort of from your vantage point, what are the big shifts you're seeing in the advertising and media space specifically from from your, your, yeah. your point of view. It's really interesting. So we do this thing every year called Webby Talks where we do a whole bunch of research around a trend that we're super interested in and we 
do a lot of big presentation around it. We work with YouGov on doing a bunch of research and data, which we share, and we can talk about it a bit. Yeah, we've done um, we've done some work with them too on our own campaign spending and trying. Yeah, trying to yeah. So um, I've you know as part of that, I bring it up because I've just I've literally spent the fall going and visiting companies that make really great internet work. Some of that's agencies, some of those are organizations like you know uh, nonprofits, some of those are brands and all that kind of thing. So I do have I have a pretty good sense of like what people talk about, especially around this type of year. And the thing that really strikes me this year around advertising media marketing is there is finally like a realization or a coming to terms with the fact that social media is not free media. Uh-huh. Um, on some, in some places there's still like this holding on to this idea that like, but it used to be free and now they want us to pay. Right. Um, and so there's still this idea of like, if only we can make the next thing that like hits on social media, there's still a lot of energy around that. But mm-hmm. at the same time, there's starting to be like a, I would say like just industry-wide, you know, understanding that, you know, trying to just create like hits for social media is not the is not necessarily the way forward, right? right? That that's, you know, that that's as hard and as difficult as creating hit movies. And there's a lot of other uh, more repeatable, more dependable, less risky ways of, you know, creating great content that in, in advertising and messaging that, that people will interact with and like. So you brought, you brought up social media and the big video that everyone is talking about this week and uh, end of last week, I guess, was... Did you catch the Sasha Baron Cohen speech I did, of at course. the Anti-Defamation, yeah. Anti-Defamation League last week? It was on the role and culpability of social media platforms, role and responsibility of the likes of uh, Facebook, Twitter, et cetera. He calls Facebook the greatest propaganda machine in history. He rails against the Silicon Six uh, really eloquently, really compellingly. I'm wondering what your take on that was. Yeah, I mean, I I definitely agree with a lot of the things he said in his in his speech there. It's hard and, not to, right? Yeah, and you know, we fo- one of the things the research we did this year and what we're focused on is just around why is it that it feels like everyone everywhere all the time is screaming and fighting with each other on the internet? Mm-hmm. Um, it just seemed to us as a question like, is this seems worse than it usually has been, and it seemed worse to us as individuals, and we all had our own stories of like why it seemed worse. Um, so we did this big research thing with YouGov around this and trying to understand whether people at home like all this fighting. Do they like, uh, you know, all the chicken sandwich fights of 2000, summer of 2019? Do they like Verizon snarking at T-Mobile? You know, and it goes on and on. Do they like politicians fight? Do they like it all? Right. Um, and do they? They generally, if you ask them, they don't actually really like it. And most but it of the, must work. On, it, on, and this is why I bring it up, because yeah. it sort of spe- talks to the point of his speech there, which I really agree with, which is if you ask people what they're hoping to see when they open up social media, only 3% of the people are hoping to see from a very long list of things that include like entertainment and videos and funny, th- all this stuff, only 3% say fighting, mm-hmm. right? But if you've spent any time on there, you know that I don't know what the percentage of the total content is as some controversial content or as fighting, but it's certainly much higher than that. And yes, it's true. It's part of very, very big reason for it is controversial content is what we're calling it. It really works yeah. on social media, right? If it bleeds, it leads. It does. And yeah. it's, it is. It's a very old school idea. Um, but with software, you're really automating that old school concept of it bleeds, it leads to a point which is like, I think leaves most people not very happy. And so- Well, they, not just automating it, but amplifying stuff that is not even, that not even verified. Yeah. And a lot of times it's not true. A lot of times mm-hmm. it is true. It's just super incendiary. Sometimes it's just really shitty opinions. Um, you know, so, and what, it's a super simple way it works, right? Which somebody says something horrendous, 
somebody else like reacts to it and because they react to it, sometimes by the way, the reaction is not that they retweeted it or they commented or they did anything that's sort of like outwardly facing reaction. They just read it, mm -hmm. right? Just reading or slowing down or giving any sort of signal that this is something you read or were interested in tells the computer, for lack of a better word, that like other people might be interested in this too. Right. Pushes it out more because that there thing- There was some level of engagement whether it yeah. was marked outwardly or not. And then because that thing was to begin with, shitty and incendiary <laughs> other people react to it and it, wins. and it goes on and it goes on and it goes on yeah. but um and i think the, what sasha baron cohen was saying and a lot of his speech i think i really agree with is that just because that's what people react to in the moment doesn't mean that that's what we want as like a society and mm -hmm. so yeah, i use the analogy of like if i walk outside and there's like a brawl on the corner i might go up and look at it mm -hmm. but it doesn't mean i want to see brawls every day on the street corner right, right. like there's a difference between what we want when we make a rational choice and what we might choose in the moment. And and this is sort of where all this stuff has gone haywire. And then the question becomes, well, who gets, who's the arbiter of who steps in and breaks up that fight? Who keeps that fight from happening in the first place? And who's to say maybe that fight needs to happen? Yeah. And I, this is the part I think with his speech, which I read also, which I don't totally agree with, but I just think is more nuanced than what he talks about. And the part that I have a hard time with is do we really want these platforms, these private companies being the people to make those decisions for us? Like, do we really want at the end of the day, I think it's f super fair to criticize Facebook or Twitter or whatever it is for, well, for promoting giving, this stuff. For giving Holocaust deniers, for example, his example, equal weight. Yeah. Um, but do we also want those companies to be like the last, is that who is responsible? Right. Exactly. Well, and that's, that's what I was I don't asking. know the answer. I don't know the answer either. But I'm, I think that's a fair question. And I think it's, I think it's, you know, it's definitely something that needs to be figured out, debated, discussed more. Um, they're definitely not doing a good job at whatever part of their responsibility is. They're not sure. incentivized yeah. to yeah. at the moment. Um, yeah. And I wonder how you inject that incentive or whether, do you, do you anticipate regulation for the platforms coming down the pike in the next year or two? Um, it's funny. I've talked to a whole bunch of uh, people recently about this stuff um, mm -hmm. at the EFF and the ACLU. I think the general consensus is, uh, you know, in Congress terms, 18 months sounds like yesterday, so I'm not sure about 18 months. But I think generally consensus is that, that they are working on it and there will be something. Mm -hmm. um, I think the overall fear, though, is that is Congress really – Better equipped Quit. than Facebook to do it. Yeah, no, we saw that they're not. When yeah, they, it brought Zuckerberg to the hill and yeah. asking him completely uninformed and, questions. Yeah, and it's it's also. I mean, they have a lot of they have. There's great staff on Capitol Hill. Like a lot of those senators do have really really knowledgeable tech people who work for them. Hmm. Um, do but, you go? Do you go to the hill? Do you go? To I DC? don't know. We're not like a lobbying organization, yeah. so we don't really do that. But I do. I do know that there is super competent people who work on those staffs who help, and so it's not as if they're. It's not as if the congressman who says like the stupid thing is at the end of the day, the only person who's going to be able to figure this stuff out. There is really, really smart people working on it. Mm -hmm. But um, it has not proven to be over time <laughs> the most nimble, quick, and like responsive organizations to problems like these. So. Right. All right. So but it, well, it'll be interesting to watch it unfold. They have, they have their hands full with other things at the moment. Up, they do. Up, up yeah. on the hill. They do. Down in D.C. Um, so back to you guys, uh, what kind of mix do you see between sort of traditional media companies, traditional media companies, and web-native companies submitting? Because you think of the webbies, you think web-native. Uh, but there's a there's a mix. Yeah, um, we you know we we see a, a huge diversity, and just even at a bigger scale, if you look at our entrance, right, 
We, I think we get about 40% of our entries come from what you would think of as an agency. So a mm -hmm. company that makes work for somebody else of any kind. Mm -hmm. um, the other 60% come from what we call like internal or people who actually make the stuff themselves, which could be like, you know, could it be anything from a startup to a media company to a museum who are making their own right. work? And I will say, because I go to, I visit agencies a lot um, just to, to meet with executives there and talk about what's going on, et cetera, et cetera. They all have their awards shelves and I'm always... I, initially, I'm not anymore, but I was initially surprised to see how many advertising agencies in the traditional definition of an advertising agency have those Webby Awards, the coiled Webby yeah. Awards sitting on their shelves. Yeah. Um, well, I think what's – one of the things that's happened is um, just the overall concept of an agency has really expanded f over time to like – they like lots of agencies make ads still, but lots mm -hmm. of agencies just make stuff, right? And it's not necessarily even campaign-driven anymore. Um, a lot of it is like they make like the – banking front end, the, you know, mm -hmm. the front end for like HSBC or, you know, all that kind of stuff. So, um, and that is the type of work we honor, right? We, we honor like the best of the internet, a lot of like websites, I can get through it, through it, like social video, et cetera. Um, so back to your question though about, sorry, about, uh, the mix, the mix of, um, traditional, um, it's really interesting because we see a lot of really innovative work coming from what you would call very, very traditional companies. Like the New York Times is by far one of the oh. most innovative digital companies in the world. No question. And has been for, you know, 10 years, if not longer. Um, and I th and we see that in other – that's just a really obvious and easy example for people to sort of, um, you know, get right, right off the bat. But we see that in lots of different types of companies too. What happens is maybe the company as a whole – is like older and isn't known for being et cetera. But there is always, the bigger the company, the the more likely there's always some division at that company, which is charged with figuring out X, Y, and Z for the future, who has been brought in and like has brought in really smart people and does really great work, right? Mm -hmm. So um, it's, it's, kind of, it's cool to see sometimes you get these like traditional companies, I'm using my air quotes you see here. your air quotes. Yeah. The, the listener does not. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, do really, really well compared to like, you know, something that we would think of as like a, a more native, like New York City, you know, blog publishing platform from back in the day or something like that, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. um, your, the, the famous Webby trademark is the five word acceptance speech that you, if you win a Webby, you can only give a speech that's five words long. Do you have a, do you have a favorite? I have a few favorites. Mm -hmm. um, I always will talk about, we had Prince at the Webby Awards. Yeah, that's a great example. Uh, his speech was everything you think is true. And he was at the Webby's because we were, he was actually one of the first artists to distribute music on the internet. Mm -hmm. And I, I love that example. He was a, also notoriously tight about he was, rights. He was, he really was. Yeah. And good for him. Um, and I use that, I bring that up for a bunch of reasons. A, I love Prince still. Mm -hmm. It was like a lifelong dream to see yeah. Prince, obviously so, for a lot of us here on that listening. But, uh, the other thing was that, those words, like they meant a lot to him. He like, he has the, if you go to his, uh, if you go to Paisley park where he had his like studio and his home and everything, they're stenciled up in the wall in his bedroom. Mm -hmm. Um, it was like a real meaningful thing for him. And I really think it's like, and we, we use it as sort of like a view into the internet last year. Um, I really think it's like a very profound way of thinking about the internet in the future where so much of what we do online shapes the experience that we eventually have online. So as we were just talking about this whole thing around like fighting and arguing, right? Mm -hmm. The more you engage with that type of content, That's what the more, you, the more, the more it becomes what situation. your life is. The more you focus on 
deep cuts on Spotify and you pursue those communities and what they're talking about, the more your world becomes about that, right? What we believe and what we see and what we read and what we think really does have like this super outsized presence on what our reality is. And it's going to be even more in the future. Which leads to this fragmentation and the this self-siloing of all of us where it can be great, where you're going down the deep hole, deep cut rabbit hole, which is where I live. Um, that's, uh, you're not, you know, I don't know. It, it, there's a, there's a, you lose some commonality that, that if everything oh, yeah. is targeted and tailored, you don't have serendipitous experiences that you share with a or, large number of people. Or you like think the earth is flat, you right. know? Exactly. And there's a lot of that. And there's studies that show that a lot of internet stuff actually makes people believe that. Right. It's like, not like they were that. You and they mean just it's like, not flat? Yeah, it's not like well, they, yeah. yeah it's not like they always believed and then they just, we just discovered them because of the internet. There are like, there, they really the doesn't. Websites. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so no, that, it, that's what part of why I love that speech because it just really does, in five words, encapsulate a lot of the issues that we are going through. Well, so say, say it again. The five Everything words. you think is true. Which is also open to interpretation and wildly subjective. Yes, right? exactly. Uh, um, and, so, and then on the funnier side, uh, this is last year, uh, we had Gritty from the Philadelphia yeah, I saw Flyers. that. I just saw that this One, morning. One uh, social media person of the year. Yeah. Super deserved. I mean, the guy's an animal. <laughs> And his speech was, and the Philadelphia people out there will get this and let those will explain it. His speech was, it's pronounced water, not water. Water, yeah. yeah. So for us, that had a lot of meaning because- Are you from Philly? I no, you're, no we, we, you're, you're not. But. I'm from Sacramento. But I went yeah. to school. I went to college in Philadelphia. So I, I get that my brother lives there and I spent mm -hmm. a lot of time there. But Because um, you used to work with, this is a total random, my brain just, a couple of synapses connected. Because you would you worked with Neil Vogel, correct? Yeah, yeah. Who's, long time who, business partners. Yeah, now it, he's at- uh, Dot a, Dash. Dot Dash, formerly about, also a Philly guy. I mean, a, yeah. a, a Sixers- yeah. Phillies, Flyers, at fan, Eagles fan more than anyone possibly could be in that same. Yeah, he and my former employer, fans. Brian Morrissey, the editor of, right. of Digiday. I see them go back and forth on Twitter about Philly stuff. Anyway, Neil Vogel was a guest on this podcast, which is I'm bringing it all back around. Um, and you guys worked at early days Webby's or yeah. earlier days. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but he, so the, he helped started it, didn't he? He did. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, he started our company, Recognition Media, with our other partner, Roger, uh, and like right when I started there, two thousand five. Right. Okay. Sorry. Wood or water? Yeah. Brady. So for us, it's really special because the one of the most famous speeches is the inventor of the GIF, which maybe you want to call GIF. I do. We recognize, and he came and he used his speech in GIF format up mm -hmm. on the screen to say it's pronounced GIF, not GIF. But he's wrong. Well, we can, I feel like we should, this is a debate for another time, <laughs> like all of it, all of eternity. <laughs> um, but so this like gritty speech is pronounced wood or not water was a reference. Ah. It's such a deeply weird cut reference too. Uh -huh. And then because I knew Philly, I, I, I think probably like 10% of that room is going to get that. Basically, yeah. if you don't get it, it's that in Philadelphia, we like to make fun of our own and Philadelphians accents. And people will typically say, can I have a glass of water? Water. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and and the guys from Philly that I know say water. Yeah, um, and just to give last deep cut on the Philadelphia stuff for the fans out there, uh, it ties into also uh, when uh, Colangelo, uh, who was the GM for the 76ers, got fired from his weird Twitter scandal where he like had like a bunch of Twitter burner accounts and was like arguing with like other fans. Oh, yeah, like sock puppets? Yeah. Nice. They, call, they called uh, in Philadelphia for a while, for a day or two, that was called Watergate. <laughs> So, there you go. yeah. Uh, 
Amazing. I'm going to Philly for Thanksgiving. No, me too. Yeah. Oh, yeah? yeah. Well, we should hang out. Um, what, uh, what are the Webby winners from past years that ended up being, in retrospect, actual game changers? Like, you recognize something. You guys were early yeah. to acknowledge something that blew up later. I mean, so many, really. So, um, well, then I, it might be more interesting to ask you anything you completely missed, but go. L- let me give you one or two of the really good ones. Yeah. Because, and, and I can, I think, from the same year even. So, 1999, mm-hmm. um, uh, we had two founders up on stage accepting Technical Achievement Award. They skated up on stage in hockey with, with their hockey jerseys on mm-hmm. and their skate and their rollerblades. Their hockey jerseys said Google instead of like a hockey team. It was Larry and Sergey. Um, Mm -hmm. I will tell you, there was not a doubt in my mind or like the other 3000 people's in the room's mind when they went up there that it was going to turn into what it did. Now, maybe nobody could imagine what the internet would become, but in 1999, that thing was so incredible. It's hard to put yourself in that. It was obvious at the time. Like the concept of like suddenly like asking any question, typing in and getting an answer was so mind boggling and Mm -hmm. it worked so many times. It was really obvious, but still fun to watch. But then the same year. Um, we honored the, we honored Napster, <laughs> right. Um, in music. Yeah. And the interesting there is that like that turned out to, but you were right. Exactly. Is it yeah. like that thing died, but the, but the it, overall it concept the music industry down with it. Yeah. And yeah. I would argue yeah. at the end of the day, probably trained everybody to think that, Hey, I should be able to just like get any song, any place, anytime, anywhere, all that stuff and right. expect that. And, you know, now today you see people, you see people like on Twitter complaining and like about Spotify being like twelve ninety nine instead of nine ninety nine, And like, you know, you know, you want to remind them that like, hey, we used to like save up our $25 CD money to go get like two CDs maybe a month at Tower right. Records or whatever. So That's things right. have definitely gotten better. Um, things that, things that we didn't get. Um, like you failed to recognize I think, Twitter or whatever. Yeah, no, I mean, it. I think ultimately over time, all that stuff has has been recognized. I think it, some of it's from a timely standpoint. So I think we were a little slow on Facebook. So I think we probably recognized Facebook first in 2007 or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was like largely like a college thing, which we were just totally out of touch with because, I mean, we weren't that old at the time, but we weren't in college. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a lot of the judges weren't in college, you know, really with that, some of that stuff comes down to. Um, so that's that's definitely uh, one of them. But I think, you know, sort of the bigger things that you think about today, like Instagram, um, Wikipedia, like some of those bigger things when you search that you're sort of using all the time, uh, most of those people have been up on stage. Mm-hmm. And so we're all, we're talking about all things um, web. What do you do offline? What's uh, How do you unplug? Uh, let's see. I, a couple of things. I'm a father, like many people, so that that I spent a lot of my time fathering and dadding. <laughs> how old are your kids? Uh, they're 10 and six. Okay. And do you have uh, boundaries as to screen time and all that? Yeah. Um, my kids actually go to a school that is like largely no media. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that really informs like, so we don't actually spend, we don't have a lot of like screen time cause it's not, a, it's just not a huge part of like their world yet. Um, mm-hmm. As they get older, I'm sure that'll become a bigger thing. And, um, as it, I've like, and I'll see your second point, as I've like started focusing more and more on basketball as I get older, mm-hmm. that my two sons also like basketball and often want to know what the score is and like look at the phone for that kind of stuff. But, um, yeah, we just, uh, we, f- we found the school in our neighborhood that we really liked. It's like not a big media school and sort of like 
advocates young young people not really using a lot of media, and we're not like super strict about it. Um, but I think, I think most schools, kinda, like I've got a fourteen and eleven year old. I think most schools are like no phones, right? <laughs> right, like yeah. they're here to sit in glass. Right, 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 right. right. Yeah. Uh, and then I guess the other thing is just re- funny is that I just it's really strange. I grew up in Sacramento. Mm-hmm. The Sacramento Kings moved to Sacramento from Kansas City when I was ten years old, and uh, there's nothing. I used to go to. I mean, it was really easy to go to a Kings game back then because the Kings weren't very good. Sacramento wasn't expensive, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so I went to tons and tons of Kings game, and I don't know. I got older. I went to college. I had other stuff going on. I paid less attention to basketball. Something I think it's like my middle age crisis. You know, other people, they go out and buy a fancy car or I don't know what else they do. But I think mine is that I just watch more League Pass than I used to. <laughs> Beats having an affair. Yes. <laughs> uh, um, and you're uh, – so you said you're, you're from San, you're from Sacramento, which is capital of California. Yeah. My home state. Um, but you're half French, right? David Michel. I am. Uh, yeah. what, what was that up, upbringing like? You, you're flu- are you fluent? I am fluent French. Yeah, yeah. yeah. My, um, well, my, uh, my mom was actually the first person in her family to be, uh, to, uh, I'm sorry, I was the first person in my family to be born in France. All my <laughs> French relatives actually were from Tunisia, which is North Africa, <laughs> and they all moved to France in like 1960 or in the middle, mid 60s, around when Tunisia of, became independent. A lot, a lot of turmoil. Yeah. Yeah, and a lot of, uh, you know especially North African Jews moved from there to France or to Italy or Spain at the time. And my mom met my dad in the Virgin Islands in like, you know, like the summer of 1970 or something oh, like that. That sounds amazing. Yeah. yeah why, like did they, why did they come here? I, I Sacramento, how did they end up in Sacramento? So, it's the least glamorous so place. They, they had a kid. They went to France. They had a kid and then in France. And then my dad got into law school in California. Right. So they moved there. And so, yeah, I really went from like, you know, being born and having like 97% of my family live in like the most glamorous, elegant, amazing city in the world, Paris, to then spending my days in Sacramento, which is a wonderful, but exceptionally boring part of the world. They call it the sack. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) What, um, well, that's amazing. Uh, so it, it must serve you well when you go to Cannes, um, if you go to Cannes. I, I haven't been, actually haven't been in a bunch of years. Um, it's, yeah, it's great to be able to speak French at Cannes, although, you know, they they don't even care, honestly. No. Those guys, they just want to charge you $22 for your Heineken or whatever, or your, you know, your rosé or whatever you're drinking. Uh, dual citizenship? I do have dual citizenship. Right, yeah. So you have an, you have an escape hatch if you need it. I hope I don't need it. I hope, I hope none of us need it. <laughs> we'll find out. We'll, find, we'll have to do this again next year. We'll find out where we're at with that. But uh, thank you for, for coming today. This was fun. Thank you. I appreciate it. Anything else you need to add or that you didn't get to? No, I, I told everybody about our deadline, December 20th. We're there always we're always hawking that. So yeah. other, other than that... Um, Keep it up, and thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks for coming. I want to thank David Michelle Davies for joining me today. He is the CEO of the Webbies, currently accepting submissions. Final deadline is December 20th. Get yours in while you can. I'm Brian Breaker, editor of Ad Age. You are listening to the AdLib podcast, neither of which have won any Webbies to date. I think we've only honestly submitted once, and that was a few years ago, but we'll see. We'll see. We'll see. Ad, <laughs> AdLib was produced this week by Max Sternlicht. Be sure to read us at adage.com. You can subscribe to the magazine in print. Imagine that. Uh, or you can subscribe to the podcast anywhere you get your podcasts. Have a happy Thanksgiving. I'm thankful for you for listening. If you're still listening. I don't know why you're still listening. Uh, see you next week. <laughs> <laughs>